tucked away is some film clips from some of his movies, but this particular movie is called Dangerous Moonlight. It would probably be on the list of top five Brian Desmond Hurst movies. If I had to say that there was one track that would sum up Brian, actually listen to it and the whole emotional nine minutes of the track is just Brian. He was always laughing or making people laugh. He'd turn up on the doorstep at Christmas dressed up as Santa with a bag of presents for myself and my sister. And he was always very kind, very welcoming and a charming man. He'd entertain us all with stories about his movie days and the people that he'd met. I just remembered him as a great talker, which makes up for everything else, doesn't it? He was a very naughty old man. He did like a story. You couldn't believe all these things that happened to one person, really. And part of the challenge is trying to see which is the strand that's true and which is the strand that's maybe not so true. You know, nobody could have had a life like this. It's completely fantastic. Brian always joked about um, Roger Moore giving Roger his early break. You know, was that a tall story? Was that not a tall story? And once you met Brian you totally believed he had had a life like this. Brian obviously left a not a lot behind and it was all slightly chaotic. So one of the things that needed to be done was to obtain a probate order over uh, an intestate estate. And what that means is that we can now try and pull together a lot of the strands of the jigsaw. The Monet, the Picasso, the Bentleys, the Rolls, I, I think they're well and truly gone. But uh, what, what we may find is some photographs, um, some scripts, some um, stories that people are prepared to tell. I think, I think there's quite a bit to be found out. I, to be honest, I think this is... <laughs> I think this is the manuscript that I did. Um... Bring it out. So it runs to 212 pages. Brand Desmond Hurst, unpublished autobiography, page one, line one. Um, I think I, I'm, I'm truly in a predicament. An Irishman changed to, to the, the truth. truth. <laughs> yes. And uh, I didn't keep a, I didn't keep a copy of it, which I've kicked myself for years. And when Brian died, although I'd been out of touch with him, I thought, I wonder what happened to that manuscript. Um, for the last three years, it's been kept in the safe in, in the British Film Institute yes. library. So I went down to see the curator. Because and I've it's got this so one copy. scandalous. <laughs> it's such a good read. <laughs> I've done that for years on some of the stories Brian told me. <laughs> well, over to you. There's, okay. there's the document. Well, Let's well. see what's there. Chapter One Childhood. <laughs> Tamar Street, Finvoy Street, Welland Street, in East Belfast, very much a Protestant culture, where essentially Brian was formed. His uh, father had died when he was uh, young. 
His mother had died when he was only three. And big sister looked after him. Seven children. Most of the lads are working in the shipyard. 1910, 1911. And Brian didn't want to go down to the shipyard. So he was working in the local linen factory. This is certainly my organisation of the material. Um, Brian, in, in, in a lot of his press releases, described his father as a, a distinguished surgeon. You know, we know that my great-grandfather was a, a metal worker in the shipyard. Now here, he talks about, as a, as a boy, I had two fathers, my real one and one I imagined for myself. So we've had it actually set out here for the first time that actually Brian did fantasise. So was Brian a captain in the Royal Irish Rifles, as I've seen in another press release? No, he wasn't. He was a private. When I was 18 years of age Into the army I did engage August 1914 He joined up in the first week of the First World War the 6th Battalion of the Royal Irish Rifles. Uh, they sail in July, uh, stopping off in Malta for a bit of fun. Now, Brian will obviously come back to Malta in 1952 in a slightly different guise with film crew, with Alec Guinness, with Jack Hawkins, with Muriel Pablo. How long do we wait in Malta? Just a few minutes or till morning? Depends what's happening when we get there. But I expect you refuel and go straight on. Did it? Just to put today's visit in context, uh, a couple of weeks ago came across a link to a lady called Deborah Desmond Hurst uh, with some pictures of Brian on it. I contacted Deborah and it turns out that Brian was very close to their family, so much so that they changed their names to Desmond Hurst. So I'm going to go down and see Deborah and also meet her mother, Sylvina. Sylvina is of Maltese origin. So your father changed his name by yeah, default. That's right, because Brian was going to adopt Dad. He called me his daughter-in-law as well. Yeah. But Sylvina, you 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 didn't know him at the time he filmed no, Malta's no, story. No. No. I must show you this one. Oh, have you got some photographs there? Wellington Castle. Because did what? you know the connection with Wellington Castle? No, I didn't. Because there was Carmelites in there and Brian used to go and um, come for less. Don't you know? Um, no, no, I, I, I haven't heard this story. It was, so. connected, it was also connected with, was it the Friars? yeah. At Ellsford. Father Malachy used to visit, didn't he? He was elderly, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, he was elderly and he died years ago. But this this wouldn't have been Father Malachy in this photograph. This oh, is a this is a, a younger. It might be no, Father I think it's Father Wilfred. Um, I I just I'm, I'm completely amazed at sort of the story that's unfolding this morning. Yeah, because his religious views we didn't talk to him about in great oh. depth. You, do you, th- you think he was a religious man? Oh, I always thought he was practicing. <laughs> sure. I don't know. I couldn't resist it. I've driven to just be at Ellsford uh, Friary in Kent. The man in the photograph that I saw was Father Wilfred McCreel. 
unfortunately he's away this week um, but uh, we'll get there If we, I think there's a chapter on 1914 and his first trip to Malta and then landed on the slopes of Gallipoli. They were absolutely slaughtered. Some soldiers, children came out to play. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. On behalf of Belfast Film Festival, celebrating the life and work of Brian Desmond Hurst, Belfast's first Bohemian, in fact, I think you should say that... The, the next film we're going to watch is, is Theirs is the Glory, now recognised as the definitive movie on Arnhem. What we'll see is the real men that fought at Arnhem. Watch out for the close-ups, watch out for the eyes, and you're watching the battle again through the eyes of the men that actually fought at Arnhem. Thanks very much. My name's Philip Orr, and I write books about the Great War in Irish history. Our orders now are we've got to hold the north end until we're relieved. Go on. The sheer carnage uh, at Gallipoli in his battalion mirrors very much the kind of carnage that the, the men suffered at Arnhem. Um, you're talking about half the, the men in the Royal Irish Rifles being wiped out. Uh, on the peninsula at Gallipoli. What do you make the score now, Dennis? I think that his experience, though, on the peninsula would have been a very international one, and indeed the whole experience of the war would have been a very international one. I mean, here's a young man who has lived in a little four-street box in, in, in Belfast, if you like, training, meeting men from Dublin, meeting men from England who were in the battalion, meeting men from nationalist backgrounds, unlike uh, his own background. Now, we have to remember that East Belfast back then was the absolute heart and hub of the Unionist resistance to Home Rule, and he's suddenly finding himself mingling with the young men who've grown up with an allegiance to Home Rule, perhaps even an allegiance to militant revolutionary politics. If they don't get through tonight, well, things are going to be pretty grim. We forget that at Gallipoli, it's not just Australians and New Zealanders. The cosmopolitanism of this dire peninsula has to be stressed. First of all, there are Indians there, there are Sikhs, there are Punjabis, uh, there are Maoris in the New Zealand regiments, there are French soldiers, there are Islamic soldiers. But shortage of food, ammunition and sleep, coupled with incessant sniping, is beginning to tell. There was no decent water supply for the men. Uh, people started to die of dysentery and things like that. All ranks will be ordered to break out rather than surrender. That whole experience of the cosmopolitanism of war, if you like, and also the horror of war, he would have needed to pay tribute to that. I've never met anyone who went through um, war on that basis that it didn't stay with them all their life. They've written in letters of fire an immortal page of history. I know some of this he told me and some of this I wrote down. Ah, yes, it's here. After Stantu one morning, I went down to the main latrine in Shrapnel Gully to empty my pot. Every morning, we would find there 10, 15, 20 godlike Australians, their faces absolutely agonised, gripping the ground, lying dead in the mucus and dysentery fluid. Sitting on the pole that day was a young Australian, his shorts down to his ankles and the dysentery pouring from him. The young Australian said to me, give us a hand up. I went to him and cleaned him up as best I could with the dirty old handkerchief he had and his field dressing. Then I carried him through the dead and dying to where there's some shade. 
I held him in my arms. He opened his blue eyes and said to me, There's some water in my bottle. He knew his dying, and that water was infinitely precious. Then he said, There's some chocolate in my haversack. Take it. And he died. Private Tommy Scullion of Ballymena County Ambulance. Their manner of passing shall be carried like a banner, borne high by all who shall come after. Very Brian, the, the godlike Australians, how beautiful they were, and there's a very powerful image in other ways for Brian, but obviously here, incredibly upsetting. I think the thing he valued most about his own work was his painterly eye. That's what he said to me. He saw movies in terms of images that were like paintings. Just ordinary men. How do you move from Gallipoli to Hollywood? Um, uncertain, but he was certainly there for a period. And ends up hitchhiking in California. This story goes uh, that the, the person in the car that stopped to pick him up was a producer in Hollywood. They get chatting, Irish heritage. One thing leads to another, and Brown gets introduced to another person with Irish heritage in Hollywood. John Ford. So Brian had been knocking out some paintings in his spare time. So Ford purchased a picture. Ford then gives him an opportunity to work as a set decorator. And that's just it. It was a bond that was going to last a lifetime. Brian had a wonderful eye, you know. Uh, he had a great visual sense, which he shared with my grandfather, John Ford. And they shared a wonderful sense of humour, uh, and there would just be gales of laughter. They saved their their best for each other, I think, and they brought and then in a way they brought out the best in each other. John Ford had nothing but praise, a sort of almost a worship of Brian. And I said, "You are cousin of Brian." He said, "We are much more than cousins. We are Irish cousins." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's nice. I'm Patrick Bashford. What can I say? I knew Brian Desmond Hurst. Uh, he was special. Um, John Ford was making a film in, in Hawaii, and Brian was coming to help him as assistant director. Um, they were very alarmed because they received a telegram from Brian saying, he's been taken very ill, please meet me with an ambulance at Honolulu Airport. So they did. I said, what's the matter? And there was Brian the ambulance, and then he started roaring with laughter because the stretcher was full of bottles of whiskey. <laughs> you know, it was during Prohibition. Started jumping around. <laughs> oh, no, chapter six, Riders, Riders to the, the Sea and Ourselves Alone. So it's like moving from the sort of Hollywood films to the Irish films. Does he return to the UK voluntarily? I don't know if we'll ever find out. Give me the holy water, Nora. He flits in and out of Belfast. So we're now sitting at 1933-34. But ends up settling in London. And he starts to direct and produce and find finance for his own movies. 
May the Almighty God have mercy on Barclay's soul. And if you watch Brian's movies, we'll see that he keeps coming back time and time again to close-up pictures of the face, close-up artistic shots. It's there in Riders to the Sea, um, images of Connemara and the wild coast, the sea rolling in, because he's trying to bring alive Singe's play, Riders to the Sea, where the poor mother loses all her sons, fishermen to the sea. They're all gone now. And there isn't anything more the sea can do to me. Irish Times, 17th of August, 1936. If there was any betting on film results, I should like to have a little flutter over ourselves alone. I am confident that this film, which has just finished a five-weeks run in Dublin and has also a double run in London, will be declared the picture of the year. Our job is to take on the tender from this side of the road. And when the British jump out, we vanish up the hill and draw them after us. Ourselves alone set in a war of independence. Yes. Abandoned Northern Ireland. Coming. Because it was believed to be... Propaganda. Because Brian always said that it wasn't directed by him to be either pro-nationalist or pro-Royal Irish Constabulary or pro-army or even pro-Black and Tans or pro-IRA all of which feature in his movie. <laughs> he said he was playing it down the middle. Sing us a song, Denny, and I'll buy you a drink. Yeah, well, I remember on one occasion, you know, we went to a, um, a monastery in Kent. It's very strange, really. I remember after lunch, um, Brian wrote a cheque for the monastery, something like 500 quid. You know, so when he had money, it went... And Father Malachi gave him a, a, a special blessing. It had to be special for 500 quid, no? And all lovely and fair There's a rose of the summer So we've come down today to the South Bank in London to the British Film Institute's National Film Theatre. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Nigel Alga. I'm Senior Curator for Fiction at the BFI National Archive. On the night of the fire uh, was made and released uh, at the very tail end of 1939. Look at you now. You're afraid. Oh, don't say that, Mr. Coppery. You're not a man. You sneaked into my house behind my back, frightened my wife, blackmailed her. Ambitiously described as Britain's first film noir, with a story as pure noir. Somebody, as you can see, who takes advantage of a situation, uh, takes one wrong turn, and one wrong turn leads to another, and another, and another. <laughs> Is there anybody in the audience that, that knew Brian? I'd really love it if, if you want to come down afterwards and have a chat. Absolutely gorgeous and absolute jewel. Hello, Alan. Hello. But how did you know Brian? I got a phone call out of the blue from this friend of 
Desmondhurst, and he asked me to a party. But I found the whole thing a bit kind of predatory. I didn't like him very much. <laughs> I knew him, an outrageous man. He had a house in um, Morocco, and he lent it to me because I was a fashion photographer and I was going to Tangier. Uh, but then he disappeared out of my life. Yes, and here we come on to um, the Noel Coward came to Tangier. Um, the blinds were drawn and his lovely-looking boy served us our meal naked. Afterwards, we took Noel down to a really rough Spanish place near the docks. I walked a little behind Noel, who looked over us and shoulders and said, What are you doing, dear? Casting, I replied. Noel swept away with his newfound companion. Before he left the next morning, he rang me up and said, Splendid casting, dear. Uh, is the one about Michael Redgrave in there? It is. It is. I'm looking now at a letter written September the 24th, 1947. It's headed up, Brian Desmond Hurst. This is from the, uh, the, the John Ford estate. It starts, Dear, dear Jack, um, as Brian would always refer to uh, John Ford as Jack. But right at the end, there's a clue, and it says, P.S. I'm going to a monastery with my priest. It's coming near, question mark. I will soon enter the church. Love to Mary, Brian. We then turn to the photograph that we saw. Father Wilfred McCreel, a young priest, talking to Brian, 1969. Where's all this going? Uh, I'm now sitting with a blank piece of paper in front of me. It starts, Dear Father Wilfred. Chapter 8, Post-War Films. Brian invited me down and Hermione Gingold, and then he said, I've got a couple of friends, Americans, coming to tea. And they turned up, and it was Tennessee Williams, Truman Capote, and George Cukor, the famous director. So it's about 1948 here, a superb photograph, discovered in British Film Institute. Left-hand side, Peter Ustinov. Uh, oh, Olivier. So it's Lawrence Olivier. It's Olivier, yeah. Yes. And where is Brian? Brian's where you'd expect him to be. Centre table. Yes. Holding court. Yes. And around them are people like Carol Reed. It's interesting, Brian... We then move into the movies that, that were big box office successes. We're talking about things like Tom Brown's School Days. We're talking about things like Scrooge. Um, made Alistair Sim. Brian is just doing his own thing. Absolutely. We were filming outside uh, Albert Hall at the uh, memorial there, and I was sitting gracefully in my carriage, and Brian came rushing up to me and said, My dear, they've opened a new box of policemen, and they're delicious. He was always kind, and he was always very patient with people, at least always very patient with me. I know somebody who did act with him. He said he, he could be really horrible. Not everybody remembers Brian fondly, but with the purpose of getting the best oh, yeah. out of them. Exactly. Brian either loved you or didn't work with you. Yeah. 
actor saying, unlike any other director, he had time for them. And he seemed to have this contrast, yeah, a push was. and pull. I remember hearing Roger Moore, he said, I owe everything to Brandes and Hurst. The Nags Head, have you been to the Nags Head? In Killington Street? Yeah, we all used to go there. I don't know if it still exists. You couldn't be anybody else, could there? Hi, Kevin. I'm hungover a little bit. I have a few too many um, McCallums last night. I've got a wee photograph here, and I'll just give this to you now. Fantastic. Problem is, you don't have a space on your wall, do you? We will, well, that, well, we will make a space. We were always a little bit confused about this sort of fact or fiction with Brian. And Brian used to always tell these great, great stories. Yeah. You know, uh, when John Ford in 73 was in his very, very final days, Brian flew over to sing The Rosa Tralee. Yeah. And, you know, was it true, was it not? Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah, he did, when he went to see John Ford, he asked him to sing The Pale Moon Was Rising Above the Green Mountains, The Sun Was Declining Beneath the Blue Sea. Well, I strayed with my beauty <laughs> near the clear crystal fountain that stands beneath the beautiful... Bale of trolleys. That's pride of place. That's pride of place, Kevin. Thanks very much. You're back into the night's head, right? Oh, you're hung. We've hung you. <laughs> We've turned right and we're just walking down Kinnerton Street toward Brian's old place. I used to visit there quite often. Come on in, guys. If you were, want to be sure of a laugh, <laughs> you'd get it there. What, I don't know, 27 years since I've been, been in, in here? It's the people who um, came there. Cecil Beaton, Hermione Gingold, uh, Robin Moore, Roger Moore. I can remember that uh, Brian's favourite spot was... We're sort of in the, in the sitting room here. He was really quite large in girth, quite fat. And he liked to sit in a big armchair. Big red gown with a telephone to his right hand side. That armchair sat there. And he would hold court. And he'd sit and he'd look out there. And then the champagne would run out and he would send somebody to get another bottle of champagne. He was incredibly generous. from Manchester. That's where I slept, on that old sofa. <laughs> He'd get his chequebook out and write cheques, cash, five pounds, and give them to each other, like Cecil Beaton, for instance. You know, they all get five pounds and stuff them in their pocket. <laughs> and that was for riotous living. Yeah. I mean, he just simply didn't care about it. Money. He didn't care at all. Grandparents came over to the, to the house. All of this was gone. Right. Oh, All uh, just uh, taken people have been fleecing him yeah. right yeah. at the end. Yeah. yeah, yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing. Um, and then I think this is where you start getting into things. Start. Um, there are a lot of things he does. Lots of films he doesn't have a lot to say about. Good afternoon, sir. Brian is Ireland's most prolific movie director. Uh, he uh, directed twenty-seven movies in total. And some of them are blockbusters. Um, some of them are, are uh, well, um, uh, that's the film he made with Terry Thomas. His and hers. 
which was the farce. And I felt sorry for Brian in this because he was clearly um, tried to do his best, but it didn't work out. I'm just wondering, because it, 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 it's 1958, right. he, he's on the final lap, um, but it was absolutely panned, absolutely panned. The instantly forgettable dog's dinner of a domestic satire, his and hers. I rather got the impression that he felt rather in the 50s, that he'd sold out a bit, that he felt somehow he'd become a bit of a hack. Call him back and apologise at once. I do not hear a thought. What's thought for the goose is thought for the gander. The work is falling into place now for the blue plaques going up for uh, Brian and Belfast. Heard good news last week that Ulster History Circle's plaque is going to go up and uh, the Director's Guild plaque is also going to go up. Right. Could you all just move in? I've got a number of apologies for uh, people that can't be here today. Brian Desmond Hurst gave me my first break in acting, for which I shall be forever grateful. He introduced me to a great many important actors and directors, offered sage advice, and set me on the path which I've enjoyed immensely. I salute him. Sir Roger Moore. We have dedicated plaques to Michael Powell, Alexander McKendrick, and David Lee. Brian is the fourth of what I hope will be a long and illustrious list of directors commemorated in this way with a blue plaque. Greatest current filmmakers in Ireland. Redmond Morrison. Uh, I have knew Brian. I've been lucky en- enough to have met him and John Ford both at the same time and with my father. So in the, the, the 30s uh, and again in the 50s, Ford, Baron Cullinan and Hurst were trying to set up an Irish film industry. Um, Michael Cullinan, his uh, son, Redmond Morris. Hope to make some films in Ireland. Agreed to come along tonight. The final film that Brian directed was The Playboy of the Western World, which perhaps wasn't the best of his movies, especially having seen. And Playboy. Playboy, there was other projects. When I was first offered a rank contract, I went over to Dublin to talk t- to Lord Cullinan, um, Redmond's father, and then the two of us went to see Sean Lamas, the Minister of External Affairs. I said to him, this country needs an Irish film industry. I will forgo my rank contract in order to come to Ireland to help you start it. Which part of of Ireland do you come from, Mr Desmond Hurst? Northern Ireland. He looked at the aide who was sitting by him. Mr Desmond Hurst means, of course, the six counties. I do not mean the six counties. I mean what is now and always has been the dominating province in Irish affairs, Ulster. Needless to say, we didn't get £100,000 for an Irish film industry, and I went back to rank. <laughs> Open the curtains. Well, we're sitting here at 20 to 10. Uh, I discovered a chap called Tom Boyd, who in the 70s had gone around and recorded an English-language programme that he was doing. The use of the English language in Ireland, and lo and behold, one of the people that he picks to interview is Brian Desmond Hurst. The tape has arrived in the post, and I don't know what's on this. Um, 
some 350 years ago. That's not him. London Derry. Or Derry, as it is. I'm back at Ellsford Priory. I'm just about to pop up to reception to see if we can meet Father Wilfred McCreel. Religion, per se. And wished to remain British. The letter that I had here is dated um, 1947. Mm-hmm. And it's Brian's writing to John Ford. Mm-hmm. P.S. I am going up to the monastery with my priest... It's coming near. I will soon enter the church. And I was wondering whether he was actually going to take up no, and I, enter the priesthood. That was my... I, I think he was making his full commitment to be a Catholic. Or, or as I would say nowadays, entering into full communion. <laughs> <laughs> Father Wilfred, um, the contrast for me is understanding a young man who in 1912 had signed the Ulster Covenant, so very much brought up in a Protestant tradition. And he's, he's very much embedded himself into the Catholic faith. Like Graham Greene once said, he'd caught the virus of the faith and he could never shake it off. And I think he probably, because of his sense of the dramatic... He enjoyed the, the worship of the church, and in those days it was in Latin, and there was a certain element of the mysterious in it. And these are the things which would have fired his imagination, and it was very different to the, the Protestant background. And when we know the divides in the north, to cross over takes also some courage. And, um, but I think the, the artist likes the sensuous in the in Catholicism. What, what, what I think of him, essentially a, a very kind person who had had to develop perhaps the flamboyant exterior to, to survive in a, a world that uh, was not easy and where he had travelled a, a long, long way in every sense. Thanks very much, Father Wilfred. Brian Desmond Hurst, who is now 86 years old, recalls dining with Joyce in Paris. I was giving this dinner party, everybody gabbling away, and James Joyce sat rather silent. He suddenly said, I've found the word I've been searching for. So we all held our breaths to hear what was coming. We thought he might come out with something like, he loved the yellow fellow, mellow, smellow, <laughs> melons of her rump, something of that sort. But the only thing he said was, the word I was searching for is yes. That's very powerful. I've never heard that. My heart was bursting with vengeance and woe. With loaded rifle, I did prepare to shoot that captain on the back. Late on one night, yeah, he said, this is for you, Patrick, because I used to ask him to sing it. I shot the colonel of the regiment. It's a true story about colonel. I had one friend and a girl was she who'd lay down. 
I went to the hospital to say goodbye to him. Uh, I mean, he was at death's door. He was reading about St. Therese of Avila, and he was always praying. And I said, goodbye, Brian. Goodbye, Patrick. Come and have lunch tomorrow. <laughs> I'll be back. I'll be back home. I, I did, but he wasn't there. And uh, I didn't see him again. And I believe that his house was desecrated. People just went in there. I don't know who stole things. Yeah. The book was never finished in the way I don't think Brian wanted to finish it. Because finishing it meant the end. This is rather what I felt, because he kept on phoning me up and he said, I found something else, I've remembered something else, and it wasn't anything new. I met Yeats and I asked him what he meant by the line. I hail the Superman. I call it death in life and life in death. Oh, he said, I don't really know. I was away at the time. That's an expression we have in Ulster. If you're away, you're in another world or thinking about other things. I remember the laughter, that he just laughed a lot, didn't he, really? <laughs> On one occasion, I can remember, um, we had lunch, and it's the only time I got drunk having soup. <laughs> laughter. His laughter and my laughter and everyone's laughter. I'm sending a message saying, <laughs> <"Shh>, don't. <laughs> That's the champagne bottle. <laughs>